If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel 38. I want to thank Dave again uh, for speaking last week, for challenging us. Um, We are grateful. As it turns out, as we return to Ezekiel, we come to a difficult passage. There have been several in this book. And it calls to mind some principles that I've tried to follow that I've shared with you. First of all, when we study a book verse by verse, I don't have the luxury of skipping over passages that are difficult. And today's passage certainly qualifies as difficult. Secondly, just the matter of prophecy itself is difficult, and particularly in the book of Ezekiel. We've seen a variety of presentations of the prophetic word, acted out signs, where Ezekiel's told, Ezekiel's told to lay on his left side for 390 days, which is to represent uh, Israel going into exile, and then to turn over on his right side and lay on it for 40 days. We have him making bread or being instructed to make bread out of uh, ingredients that don't normally go together. Uh, wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. And then he's, that's what he's supposed to survive on the 390 days he's laying on his left side. Then he's told to shave his head and his beard with a sword, weigh the hair, divide it into three sections, and deal with it as instructed. And finally, I think one of the last acted out signs is when he's told to pack his bag as, as though he's going into exile. He's in exile, but to sort of act out the prophetic word that God has given him. And then we have parables, chapter 17, that of the two eagles. We have an allegory, an extended allegory in chapter 16 of the infant, the newborn girl that is left abandoned in the field. And a traveler comes along and cares for her, takes care of her, raises her, and then ultimately marries her, but then she decides she wants to be a promiscuous prostitute. And it is an allegory for the behavior of Israel and Judah. And then we have visions, as we saw the last time I spoke from chapter 37, uh, the valley of the vision of dry bones, or the vision of the valley of dry bones. There are sermons, there are laments. Uh, We have a whole book in the Old Testament, Lamentations. It is a Hebrew literary form. So there are so many different forms, some of which are unfamiliar and difficult for us. The third thing, third principle, is that a passage should not be studied in isolation. Context is important. And part of that context is the whole of Scripture. You have the immediate context, you know, the verses around it, the chapters before and after Uh, But we need to look at scripture as a whole. So, for example, in chapter 20, we learned something really interesting about Israel when they were slaves in Egypt, something that we didn't know up to this point, that somehow we imagine that they are these God-fearing people who are suffering under the lash of the Egyptians. And in fact, we find out that they're actually pagans. And God comes, is like, okay, should I destroy them or should I rescue them? And God decides to rescue them, and that is his redemptive act in their lives. Um, In our text today, there is something that shows up in Revelation, that of Gog and Magog. And then one more thing, and I hope that I make this clear, or I have over the years. There are things that I just don't know. And if I don't, uh, I will tell you. Let's go back to the matter of prophecy. The matter of prophecy is difficult, 
but I think we make it more difficult oftentimes than it needs to be because we tend to think in terms of prediction rather than promise. So we're given this, this prophetic word and then we're trying to figure out, so what does that mean? How did that work out in human history? And we've looked at this in the past and I wanna review it briefly. Um, I believe that God speaks more in terms of promise than prediction. We prefer prediction, but God in fact prefers promise. A promise is made between two persons or two parties. It presupposes that there is a relationship between them. And this promise may in fact serve to bind them even closer together than they were before. A prediction on the other hand is quite impersonal. It doesn't require any relationship whatsoever uh, between the predictor and the one about whom he is making or she is making a prediction. A promise is made to someone a prediction is made about someone. We have a number of predictions in the Old Testament, particularly about Gentile nations. They are made about them, but the promises are made to God's people. The promise is made to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. And Paul tells us if we belong to Christ, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, not the prediction. The second thing about a promise versus prediction is that promise requires a personal response of acceptance. You know, if I make a prediction, you, you can take it or not, that, you know, that's up to you. A promise, on the other hand, um, requires a response. And this is what we hear with Abraham, that God made him a promise and Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The promise comes as an initiative of God's grace. It's always dependent on God's grace. But those to whom the promise is given must, in fact, respond. And then the third thing we've seen is that a promise involves ongoing levels of fulfillment. A prediction is fairly flat. Either it happens or it doesn't. Okay? And if it doesn't, um, that's the end of it. Um, but if it does, that's the end of it. If it doesn't, then we come up with a whole bunch of excuses about why it didn't happen. Uh, the prediction was mistaken, it wasn't properly understood, uh, or it may yet come to pass in the future. We do have predictions here in the book of Ezekiel. Um, they did come to pass, but a promise is quite different. It involves that personal relationship and commitment and acceptance. It has a dynamic quality to it that goes beyond mere details. So for example, in human relationships, when a couple enter into marriage, they make promises to each other, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. The fulfilling of that promise will take different forms over the years. It will make different demands, call for different responses but it all begins with a promise, okay? The promise remains, the words haven't changed. The relationship may change, circumstances may dictate how the promise will be kept, but the promise is still there. In the book of Ezekiel, there is a recurring promise versus prediction. We do have predictions, but the primary focus is that of a promise. And what is that promise? They will know that I am the Lord. This statement in various forms is found throughout scripture, 
88 times. 88 times we are told that people, God says, and they will know that I am the Lord. 88 times. In the book of Ezekiel, 72 times. That means only 16 times outside the book of Ezekiel. So this is the promise. This is the focus of the book of Ezekiel. It will occur five times in the two chapters we're going to look at today, chapters 38 and 39. And yet, I would say that does not seem to be what people focus on, particularly in the passage we're looking at today. So with all that in mind, we're going to look at chapters 38 and 39. And the first question I think immediately that comes to mind is the context. Damon, what is the context here? We just studied chapter 37, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, with an explanation that in fact it points to the restoration of God's people. Um, And then you have the acted out sign of the two sticks that Israel and Judah would be joined together again. And then almost seemingly making a, a wild right turn, it begins in chapter 38 to talk about Gog of Magog. It seems like an abrupt shift. I would argue that it is not. It really does fit. Ezekiel and the exiles have just been told that God would in fact restore Israel and reunite Israel. And in that context, God, we are told that Gog and his allies will try to attack God's people. So God says, I'm going to restore you. And then immediately says, but you know what? There's going to be serious opposition in the person of Gog of Magog. There are seven sections in these two chapters. They're marked off by the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me, or this is what the sovereign Lord says. So follow along, if you would, as I read the first nine verses here in chapter 38. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, prophesy against him, and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen, fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all the shields and helmets, all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer with all its troops, and Beth Torgama from the north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared. You and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days you will be called to arms. In future years you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. So the first question that comes up, who is, who is Gog, and, and who are all these other people, these, these places? He's a chief uh, prince of Meshach and Tubal. Uh, He's from the land of Magog. Tubal and Meshach are actually mentioned in chapter 27 and the lament over the king of Tyre. They are people or places that did business with Tyre. But as to Magog, Gomer, and other places, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. This is after the story of the flood before the the Tower of Babel. And we're given the genealogies of the three sons of Noah. And... Of his son Japheth, we are told, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, 
Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. These are ancient names, and I would suggest ancient peoples, which are difficult, if not in fact impossible, uh, to identify with historical figures. And I would suggest to you that what is being done here is we are being given symbols. Symbols of what? Of overwhelming evil power and opposition to God's people. Gog, from the land of Magog, is one who represents the opposition to God's people. As I mentioned to you earlier, uh, Gog and Magog are mentioned in Revelation, in the book of Revelation chapter 20. And what is the context there? Um, Let me just read you briefly. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. That is overwhelming. They marched across the breadth of the land and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. In chapter 37 of Ezekiel, we are given a vision of the restored and reunited uh, Israel. But right away we have a word of opposition, and not just ordinary opposition. It will be ongoing, it will be overwhelming. It's represented in the person of Gog, who we really, frankly, have no idea. There are many theories, but I would say we don't know. But he represents, he is symbolic of the opposition to God's people. In, chap- in verses 10 through 16, we are now given sort of an uh, insight into the plans. Verse 10, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, Have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, and to seize much plunder? Now we have another oracle, verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And that day when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. The plan is to attack and plunder those who seemingly are unprotected. Unwalled villages, for example. This is the evil scheme of Gog and those that he represents. Let's continue in verse number 17. We have a later fulfillment of this prophecy, verse 17. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Are you not the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel? At that time they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the Sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. 
the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a great sword, a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. Verse 23, and so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. What will happen to this overwhelming, this evil opposition to God's people? What will happen to them is something that prophets before Ezekiel had been talking about. That in fact the day would come when God would destroy them. In Revelation 20, I actually I didn't finish the last verse I was reading, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. I would suggest to you that these verses and passages like this have sustained God's people through the years as they have faced seemingly overwhelming persecution and opposition. There is the promise that one day God, in fact, will deal with Gog and Magog, those who oppose God's people. But it isn't simply that God's going to, yeah, he's going to get them. But it is, in fact, a revelation of himself. He will make himself known, his greatness and his holiness, and then they will know that I am the Lord. Even when God judges, it is a revelation of who he is. Then we come to chapter 39, and we have the defeat of the invaders and the disposal of the dead. Bear with me as I read through this. It's an extended passage. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, O Gog, chief priest of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel, I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. Then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up, the small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears. For seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel. They will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the Sovereign Lord. I'm going to stop there a minute. This passage, I think, on some level should remind us of what we read in Isaiah chapter 2, that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. God says, listen, all the weapons that they thought to use against his people will in fact be used for fuel. And again, I don't think this is to be taken literally, but it is to say that in fact, God would deliver his people. 
Verse number 11, we'll continue with this fifth oracle. On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east toward the sea. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And, on, and the day I am glorified will be a memorable day for them, declares the sovereign Lord. Men will be regularly employed to cleanse the land. Some will go throughout the land, and in addition to them, others will bury those that remain on the ground. At the end of seven months, they will begin their search. As they go through the land, and one of them sees a human bone, he will set a marker beside it until the gravediggers have buried it in the, land, in the valley of Haman Gog. Also, a town called Hamon, Hamona will be there, and so they will cleanse the land. Simply put, God would be glorified in the defeat of those who have opposed him and his people. They're going to be burying bodies for seven months. Again, I don't think to be taken literally, but to make a, a point, to make the point that God's judgment on the, those who oppose his people will be quite severe. And the severity of it is seen in the final oracle. Um, this is the sixth. That in fact, they're not just going to bury the bodies, but the birds of the air are going to have a feast. Verse 17, chapter 39. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. As if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I'm preparing for you, you will eat fat until you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. I will display my glory among the nations and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. And the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies. They all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. Just a couple things to note. Not only do you have the result of those who oppose God, but God's own people who had, in fact, engaged in idolatry, God sent them into exile because of their rebelliousness. One thing I would point out, it's been mentioned by several commentators, in verse number 17, when the animals come, the birds come, they will eat flesh and drink blood. And it's referred to as a sacrifice. And some people have suggested that this has very Eucharistic overtones to it, uh, where Jesus says, in John 6, that he read to us, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And here you have this sacrificial sense. Um, but God will judge them as he has judged his people. But this is not the end of the story. Look, if you would, at verse number 25. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will now bring, back, or bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame 
and all of the unfaithfulness they showed toward me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself holy among them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit in the house of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. And now we have a better sense of why we have these two extremely difficult chapters talking about Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, and all these things. There's restoration. There will be opposition. But God himself will care for his people. He will restore his people. There is hope. They will not be left alone. If we're not careful, and I say carefully, Many are not. They look at this passage in terms of prediction. Who is Gog? Who is Magog? Is that Russia? And is Russia going to come against Israel in the modern day? Is this a prophetic passage? It is a prophetic passage, but it's one of promise. That God will restore his people. And yes, in the midst of restoration, there will be opposition. But God will care for his people. And then, here's the promise, they will know that I am the Lord. As I said at the beginning, prophecy can be a difficult matter, especially if we think only in terms of prediction rather than promise. The key to Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, uh, particularly the birth, is found in the word fulfilled. Matthew used the word fulfilled more than any of the other gospel writers. Mark uses it twice. Uh, Luke uses it 12 times. Uh, Most of them with regard to Uh, to the passion of Jesus. John uses it nine times, all dealing with the passion, the sufferings of Jesus. But Matthew uses it 16 times. And what we find is he uses it a a dozen times before we even get to the passion of the Lord Jesus. Four times in the first two chapters, which speak of the birth of Jesus, we hear this word fulfilled. For Matthew, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And I would say promises rather than predictions, which is why if you read particularly Matthew chapter 2, and he'll say something like, and this was to fulfill what was written, and you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really see the connection. I, I didn't see a, a, a prediction there. You know, those who are weeping in Ramah. Well, that's talking about Jeremiah when they went into exile. And yet Matthew sees it as a fulfillment because he is thinking in terms of promise. He's thinking in terms of promise. And what Matthew wants us to see and what we should see today is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, not primarily of predictions. If you're going to share the gospel with someone I would suggest to you that we should not think in terms of prediction. Did you know that in the Old Testament it made all of these predictions and they came true? Therefore, you should believe in Jesus. No. What we have in the Old Testament are God's promises, as he promises people beginning with Abraham, and actually going all the way back to Adam and Eve, that her seed would crush the serpent's head. God makes promises, and Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of that promise. 
as Paul would write to the Corinthians, that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. Opposition to God's people has been a constant in human history. In this particular passage, it's Gog of the land of Magog. These are mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, as I mentioned. The chapter opens with Satan being bound for a thousand years, and he's being bound so that he will not deceive the nations. And then he is loosed, and when he does, he gathers Gog and Magog. There, it's not quite the same as Ezekiel, because Magog's not a person, it's a place. But John is trying to make the point that there will be opposition, that in fact, you will have this overwhelming, they will be like the sands of the seashore who will oppose God's people. They march against, or across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But God is victorious. He sends down fire from heaven and he destroys them. And what is envisioned here is worldwide opposition that's always been there against those who are God's people. Opposition to the kingdom of God, the people of God, and the gospel. And this is the promise. Here we are, almost 2,000 years after the Lord Jesus was here on earth. I think we're still thinking of predictions. We're trying to figure out, when is the second coming going to happen? You know, who is Gog? Is that, you know, who are all these, how's it going to turn out? And I, th- I think we've missed the point. We've missed the boat. It's about God's promises. The promise is that the Lord Jesus will return. When that will happen, we are not told. So it's not a question of prediction, it's a question of promise. And when it comes to the gospel, that our sins will be forgiven, is that prediction? Is that a promise? I would suggest to you that the gospel is promise. It is promise, not prediction. And to the people that Ezekiel is hanging out with, he's among the exiles, you know what he said in chapter 37 about the the dry bones coming to life? Yeah, um, Ezekiel, what have you been smoking? That's not going to happen. That's fantasy. And Ezekiel is almost as much as to say, no, no. And let let me tell you how I know it's not fantasy. There will be opposition. If it was fantasy, everything would turn out rosy. No problems whatsoever. All those bones that came together and then he called the four winds and they breathe into him, they're alive. They would, be, they would live happily ever after. Nope. There's Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, the rest. But the promise is, then they will know that I am the Lord. And by God's grace, and only by his grace, is that a promise that we can embrace today. By God's grace, we will know that he is the Lord. Being human as we are, I think we would prefer prediction. We prefer prediction. And even when it comes to promises, when I was a little kid in Sunday school, we used to sing, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. Uh, Actually, no. (laughs) That's not how it works. But God has made promises to us. And by his grace, may we come to see that he is the Lord. Let's pray together.
Father Living When and Where We Do, we are by nature in a technological society problem solvers. And so we would rather deal with predictions and try to figure out, we want to figure out the puzzle, put all the pieces together. Instead of resting in you, in a relationship with you, that you have made promises. Because we are your people. Of those who are not your people, you do make predictions. But to your people, you send, you give promises. These chapters that we've looked at, I fear, have often been misunderstood because we're trying to figure out things. We're trying to figure out the prediction, the predictive nature. And we've missed, we've missed it. We've missed the wonderful promise. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is an amazing promise. It's no small thing. It's only by your grace that our eyes can be opened to see the truth of who you are. And I ask that by your spirit you would do precisely that. We're grateful that your promises are fulfilled in your son, the Lord Jesus. And because of him, we have come to know that you are the Lord. You've given us new life. May we not go back to the land of predictions, but live in the promised land, the land of your promises, and revel in the fact that you are our God. More than that, our Father, who cares for us and takes care of us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to meditate on these things, bring these back to our mind in the coming days. Come to see the wonder of your promises. We would rather chase after predictions. We thank you, Father, for bringing us together today to worship you. And we ask that as we leave this place, your spirit and your grace would go with us. As we walk through the world in the coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. May we remember your promises as seen in the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.